The title of my sermon this morning is Conflict Resolution According to Jesus. Conflict Resolution According to Jesus. One of the hardest decisions, from my perspective, that any child could ever have to do is putting their parent into an assisted living or a nursing home. Now, yeah, well, Zach, I don't know if Zach thinks it's as hard as, as not a real hard decision, right? No, I didn't think so. Well, <laughs> well I, I can imagine how this could be, a, there's a lot involved, and it could be a traumatic change for the elderly person involved. This was true of 92-year-old Amy Blessing, a Maricota County in Arizona. Just this last June, her son approached her about putting her into an assisted living home. She didn't take the news very well. As a matter of fact, she took it so poorly that she found the two pistols she had hidden in the house and she killed her son. I mean, she, she was very much against going to a nursing home, so you better be careful, Zach. Um, let's see here. Eventually, her son's girlfriend hopped in and wrestled the guns away from her, but it was too late. She was charged with one count each, a first-degree murder, aggregated assault with a deadly weapon, and kidnapping. It is clear that Amy Blessing did not know how to effectively deal with conflict. She did not know how to effectively handle conflict, which is why she's going to be spending the rest of her life in a very special type of assisted living facility. I don't know about you, but I kind of like to avoid conflict at all costs. If I can get myself away from it and not deal with it, that's what I want to do. Uh, There are some people who kind of enjoy conflict, but most of us just try to avoid it at all costs. Yet the reality is everyone will face conflict at one point or another in our lives, and it is important for us to know how to handle that conflict. Jesus, of course, dealt with conflict perfectly because he's God. You know, if we were God, life would be easier when we had this stuff. Yet we can take from Jesus' example and learn from it. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the end of the ninth chapter, not all the way to the end, but near the end of the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and, and try to understand how Jesus dealt with conflict. But before we do, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for the chance you've given me to declare your word. Allow me to do so from a spirit-filled perspective. Allow your spirit to guide me. Allow your spirit to just cause me to say only what you want me to say. Lord, don't let me interpret your word in a way that's not accurate. Just help me tell you and tell this group of people everything that you want me to tell them. So, Lord, I thank you and I praise you in your name. Amen. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We are two sermons away from ending the ninth chapter of Luke. It just feels like we've been here for weeks, and I think we have, more like months. Uh, So today and next week, we'll be done with the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today, we begin a section of Luke that depicts Christ's making, Jesus making his final trip to Jerusalem before, of course, his death and resurrection. So this is the beginning of the road to the cross. And that that begins here in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and that that trip, if you want to call it, that goes all the way until chapter 19, verse 27. In our text, verse 51 to 56, we're going to learn rather clearly how Jesus deals with conflict. I mean, from my perspective, I thought it was simple. So this is what I'm going to do. Very basic. I'm going to read. We're going to study through the text. I'm going to give you some commentary, and then I'm going to apply that text by giving you a three-step approach, which I believe is taken directly from the text. So let's start by taking a look at our our text today. So open your Bible, like I said, to Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to start with verse 51 and 52 of Luke chapter 9. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a city of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. 
So Luke tells us that as the, that the days were approaching for his ascension, the author completely skips the resurrection and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It goes right to the ascension. He's getting right to the point. You know, you know, he's saying the days are coming where Jesus is going back to heaven. He was determined, it says. Luke tells us that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. In Greek, this literally means Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He directed himself, and he's going to walk in that direction until he gets there. That's the plan. This trip would involve Jesus' large group of followers traveling, through, traveling from Galilee through Samaria, Samaria in order to get to Jerusalem in Judea. Here's a map just because, I, I, for me, it helps out. Um, helps understand things. So I'm going to use my little laser pointer here. There's the Sea of Galilee. Most of Jesus' ministry up to this point has taken place in Bethesda and Capernaum. From this point on, we are leaving that area. So the geography of our text is going to change now. Jesus is making his way down. Oh, my thing goes blocked. Down through Samaria to Jerusalem. Right there. There's Bethlehem below. There's Jerusalem. There's Judea. So he's going from the the northern area of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee, he's got to travel through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. In preparation for his arrival in Samaria, because it takes quite a bit, it takes several days to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, so they have to spend the night. And, and Jesus, his group, is now kind of big. It was big before, but it's gotten even bigger now. You have the 12. We know there was a bunch of women along with this group, but now there's even other people that are just following Jesus that aren't amongst the 12 disciples. So his group is a large group of people, and they need to find accommodations. They need to find a place to stay. They need to find food to eat. So as a result, he sends two of his followers. It does not say disciples. It says two of his followers on ahead. It would seem that this group was planning to spend the night there, if not longer, is the thought. Because, again, it's a, quite a bit of text um, between chapter, 19 and cha or chapter 9 and chapter 19, 10 chapters that we're going to focus on, that gets us to, to Jerusalem. So stuff's going to happen, and he's going to spend some time in different locations. But in verse 53, we learn that Jesus and his group are not welcomed in Samaria. So look at verse 53 now. But they did not receive him, meaning the Samaritan villagers within the village or the town that he went to did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. So Luke tells us that Jesus was the one who was rejected. I thought that was interesting. I mean, look at the text again. It says they did not receive him. In my Bible, it's it's capitalized. It did not say them, meaning the two followers that went to prepare a place. They rejected Jesus. He took this personally, which I, I thought was interesting. Now, this might be saying that since his two messengers were rejected, Jesus was thus rejected, which is still le legitimate. That still makes sense. Uh, nonetheless, here's kind of the point. You know, it, it, the point is that he was rejected because of his, because of his I can't speak, because of his ethnicity. I mean, look at the end of the text, because he was traveling towards Jerusalem, meaning Jesus and his crew were refused service in this town because they were Jewish. Why? And here's the reason. I'm going to give you more details than you need to know. So here we go. The Jewish people and the Samaritan people hated each other with a very powerful passion. They did not like each other at all. Hatfield and McCoy's type deal going on here. Let me tell you why. And they were literally related to each other. Here it goes. The United Kingdom of Israel was divided after Solomon's death, meaning King David's son's death, due to the foolishness of his son, Rehoboam. Now, we talked about this this morning, didn't we? Um, didn't, uh, what was the text? It said something in Ecclesiastes about how, you know, what's the point of working? You're just going to leave it to your kid, and they're going to ruin it, right? That's literally what happened to Solomon. 
Solomon did all this amazing stuff. He did, built some amazing buildings. He built the temple only to leave it to his son, who then caused the country to split in half. A civil war took place, all because of of an unprepared son, I guess is the way to call it. So the United Kingdom of Israel is divided in two after Solomon's death. The ten northern tribes formed a nation known variously as Israel, Ephraim, or after the capital city built by Omer, Samaria. So oftentimes we call the northern kingdom Israel. In 1722 BC, Samaria fell to the Assyrians and the leading citizens were exiled and dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. Non-Jewish people were then brought into Samaria. Intermarriage resulted and the rebels, as they became known, were now half-breeds. They were no longer truly Israelites. They were half-breeds. They were mixed in, in the eyes of the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern half of the kingdom of Israel, which was made, which we call Judea, we call them Judah. So we have Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. That southern kingdom was made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes made up the northern kingdom. These individuals in the southern kingdom were also conquered. They were conquered by the Babylonians. After the Jews and the Samaritans returned from, returned from exile, respectively, in Babylon and the Assyrian empires, the Samaritans sought at first to participate in the rebuilding of the temple. You look in the book of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah, they were rebuilding the temple. The Samaritans wanted to be a part of that. When their offer of assistance was rejected, they sought to impede its building. They were not very happy that they were told, no, you can't help because you're no longer truly Israelites. You're a mix. The Samaritans later built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, Gerizim, Gerizim but, led, but led by John Hyrcanus. The Jews destroyed that temple in 129 BC. As a result of this hostility, the Jews wishing to travel to Galilee would typically take the longer journey around the Jordan River in order to bypass Samaria. The point is they hated them so much they wouldn't even go through the country. It'd be like just going right around. You don't like Michigan? You just, well, I guess you wouldn't go up through Michigan anyway. But it's like going right, right around somewhere. You're just going to avoid them. You don't even want to enter on their land. That's how much you dislike this group of people. What? Avoiding Pennsylvania to get to Connecticut. It's not really feasible, but it's possible, is the point. It was easier to travel straight through Samaria, but most Jewish people didn't. Of course, that's not what Jesus did. Let's take a look at verse 54. Back in, uh, where am I? Luke chapter um, 9, verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So in... In his list of, okay, let me, I'm, I'm getting confused. Here we go. In his list of 12 disciples, the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us, and he, Mark describes James and John in this way. Mark chapter 3, verse 17. It's not on the screen, unfortunately, so just pay attention. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and in parentheses it says, to them Jesus gave the name Boangerges. I can't say the name. More or less it means sons of thunder. They were described as thun, sons of thunder by Jesus because I think, as we see very clearly in this text, that kind of was their personality. James and John seemed to be living up to their nickname. In Luke chapter 9 earlier, a couple of, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I preached this to Luke chapter 9 verse 5 where Jesus gives instructions to his disciples as they departed to minister in his name. He said this, And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from, the, from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So here's my point. 
how James and John went from shaking the dust off their feet when they were rejected to calling down fire from heaven within, what, a couple of weeks is beyond me. You know, they, they clearly are missing the point. But, of course, Jesus has a lesson for them. Look at verse 55 and 56. Let's finish off the text. But he, but Jesus, turned and rebuked them. He rebuked James and John and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, the part in the middle of this text, I don't know what it looks like in your Bible. In my Bible, where it pretty much says the words that Jesus spoke are in brackets. It's because most people believe that these were inserted after the fact. Kind of where I'm leaning here is the fact that it's very possible that Jesus spoke the words, but I feel clearly that Luke did not record the words, if that makes sense. It's not saying that Jesus did not say this at this point. It's saying that Luke did not record it at this point. So I'm going to give you a lesson when it comes to the transcribing of the New Testament. So when they had the New Testament, unlike the Old Testament, when you would get the book, so let's say Luke comes to town or one of Luke's protégés comes to town and he has the original writing of the Gospel of Luke. You want a copy of that. Unfortunately, you can't run down to the office and make a copy. You've got to handwrite it. And unfortunately, you don't have a lot of time to do this in. So you're just scribbling out a copy the fastest you can. Your handwriting's not perfect. There are mistakes everywhere, crossed out stuff. And make a long story short, there you go. Now you have your own personal copy of the Gospel of Luke, a transcription, if I can say it right. They transcribed the copy of Luke. Now this copy, this guy who got the copy, he's happy with it. He's just like you, right? In your Bible, he's reading it, and he puts notes in the corners. But now another individual comes. He wants a copy of the Gospel of Luke. He takes this guy's copy of the Gospel of Luke and copies it himself, including the notes in the corners. And as a result, he inserts that note in this spot. If that makes any sense, that's kind of how this piece of text got inserted there. It's not saying that Jesus didn't speak it, because it's very logical terminology that Jesus spoke this. I just don't think it sounds like Luke, and I think most people would say that Luke did not record it. So really what verse 55 and 56 are saying is, is this, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So let's focus on that. Nonetheless, the words are true. They're, very, they're, they're essentially saying what we already know, but they're just not part of, of the original text is, is my point. So Jesus rebuked the sons of thunder. James and John failed to understand Jesus' teaching regarding his eventual death and resurrection, as well as the ethical treatment that they were supposed to have of other people. You know, I mean, he, he, they completely forgot that they are supposed to minister to people, not call fire down from heaven upon these people. Instead of, instead of agreeing with his disciples and calling down fire from heaven, Jesus simply just continued on his journey, which I thought was a very powerful act. So let's kind of get to the point here. What can we learn from how Jesus resolved this conflict with the Samaritans? What can we learn from how Jesus resolved this conflict with the Samaritans? And it's very simple. It's in your bulletin, and now it's going to be on the screen. Three simple words. Think, correct, act. Think, correct, act. First of all, think. Instead of reacting without thinking and in anger, as James and John did, Jesus reacted calmly and appropriately. Christians need to look at the context of a situation to gain all the details re relating to the conflict itself. Essentially, what this is saying is think before you act. Think before you act. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 19 says this, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, 
but a foolish, but a fool displays folly. When we speak out of line, we're only speaking foolishness. But when we think through what we speak and speak the words that reflect the word of God, we are speaking with knowledge. Don't act foolishly. Let, don't let words sneak out of your mouth without filtering them through your brain first. That's really the perfect little statement here. Don't let, don't let words sneak out of your mouth without filtering them, filtering them through your brain first. You know, your brain is there for a reason. You need to use it. And then I thought what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 is very powerful as well. So let's take a look at that now. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 to 18 says this. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as, as the Lord forgave you, so also, you should, or so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is perfected, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which and indeed, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanks, thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Let's take a quick moment, look through the words in this thing here, this verse, this text that, that Paul writes. He begins, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. These are characteristics that we're called to have. Then he says, just as the Lord forgave you, you should forgive others. Then he said, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Meaning unity within the church, as in the, the overall universal church, all of Christians, as well as within our church. Unity is, is bonded together, is glued together with love. More specifically, the love of Christ. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful, he says at the end of the verse. Then verse 16 begins, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's really the key to all of this as well. The word of Christ needs to be the center of all that you do. And then finally, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how a Christian is called to re react in conflict, no matter what that conflict is. You are called to react in the way that Jesus would react. You are called to react through thinking things through, is the point here. So, and now we are, now, okay, and, and by doing this, if we think before we act, we're going to be more likely to act like Jesus. Here's, that's the point. Number two here. The second step is correction. So we have to think, then we have to correct. Now, here's an interesting thing about correction. I, I told this to Thomas earlier today. I was because, you know, I, I have a hard time keeping my sermon to myself. It starts coming out throughout the week. So some of you guys might have already heard the sermon. You never know. When I say correct here, I do not mean correcting other people because I have some news for you. Ready for this? You do not control anyone but yourself. Even my kids. Are you kidding me? Have you... I try to control my kids. It's more like they're controlling me half the time. Being dragged around on some little train in the mall. What in the world happened there? I don't know if you guys saw that on Facebook. I had to squeeze onto this little train in the mall. And, 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 the, and the conductor, if you want to call him that, was very, very, very happy to be doing the job. That's for sure. I, I'm just, I wasn't as thrilled having to get into the little coal car, the second one right there. But it sure made Katie happy is the point. I don't know what the point there was. Um, again, you don't control the actions of other people. That's, that's the point I'm trying to get at here. The only correction you are able to do in reality 
is to yourself. I mean, Jesus corrected his disciples. So to some level, we can get off and we can focus on how the correction that could take place is amongst Christians. And there are times where that is needed. But I'm not focusing on that today because you know what? We have enough to worry about ourselves, right? I mean, I can't worry about everyone else. I've got to worry about myself, right? We can't worry about your coworkers, your neighbors, or whoever. You know, don't worry about how tall your neighbor's grass is. Just make sure your own grass is cut and mowed and whatnot. You only control yourself. When in the midst of conflict, you need to look at yourself and determine what you need to learn from the situation. Bottom line, Colossians chapter, not Colossians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. Test yourself. Look at yourself. And obviously, this verse is more specific to salvation, but I think it goes beyond that. Test yourself to see where you're standing in the midst of whatever situation you find yourself in. Conflict at work, conflict wherever, conflict in the, you know, in the car on the way to work with all the people around you. I don't know, you know, road rage kind of thing. Now, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40 says this. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Bottom line, look at yourself. Open the door to your heart and examine who you are and what you can do differently, whether it's with your family, with your, your, your neighbors, like I said, with your coworkers, whatever. Whatever you want to do, whatever conflict you want to insert, look at yourself. Don't try to fix them. You can't fix them. I love to fix my family. It just doesn't work that way. No matter how hard I try, you've got to fix yourself first. Look into your own heart to make the appropriate corrections. No matter how hard you try, you are never going to be able to fix or correct other people. Worry about yourself. You have enough to fix. Number three here. So step one, think. Step two, correct. Now, finally, step three is act. Act. After correcting his disciples, Jesus acted by departing the area. I just thought that was so perfect, right? The Lord of heaven and earth, who can control everything. He could call down fire from heaven if he wanted to, right? I mean, God's done it before. Yet Jesus chose not to. Jesus chose to walk away. Instead of addressing, instead of not addressing the conflict, but, you know, he addressed it. He addressed it within himself or really within his disciples, right? Jesus could have acted in a different way, and he chose not to. And there might be times where when you react to conflict, it's going to be, it's going to have to be in a proactive way instead of the passive type departure type deal like Jesus did. But I think most of the time, walking away from a negative situation is the best way to handle it. Live like Jesus did. Turn to me to Matthew chapter 5. Let's read a text that I think hits on this quite a bit. Matthew chapter 5, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a little bit after the Beatitudes, more than a little bit, quite a bit after the Beatitudes. Listen to what Jesus has to say about, um, about conflict from my perspective here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, all the way down to verse 39, or 49, 38 to 49, or 48, 38 to 48. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, Go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your, enemy, or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father, or of, the, of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Think of the translations or other parts of the Bible that says you are to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. It's not easy. Like turning the other cheek, oh, we like to say that. Isn't it amazing how people tell you to turn the other cheek when they're not in the midst of the situation? I don't know about you. I, I, don't you love that? You know, when you're in the middle of a conflict, you don't want to turn the other cheek. You want to turn the other fist. It doesn't work that way, though. I mean, I'm telling you now, it does not work that way. Jesus never did. I mean, obviously, like I said, there are times when there's a need to be proactive. I mean, the, the whole, you know, remember the temple, the, the money changers in the temple. Jesus cleared the temple. I mean, he didn't turn the other cheek there. You know, he did what he had to do. There are times where that's necessary. I just don't feel like those times are as frequently or frequently as there are times when we need to just walk away. It's just easier sometimes to walk away. And honestly, the best decision that we can make in any of these situations is acting out in love. If you love the other person, no matter what they've done for you, you're going to be doing what God wants you to do. Bottom line. Let's close up. So just again, remember, think, correct, and act. Think before you act, correct your own actions, and act with love. Bottom line, a story is told of a conflict counselor who received a phone call from a Catholic priest. The priest and the principal of the parish school had seen their relationship deteriorate to the point they could no longer communicate. The conflict counselor spoke to both men and said, before we get together, I want you to write down for me what you think the problems are in your relationship. The principal and the priest came to the first meeting. They sat opposite one another, and, and the conflict counselor asked them to read out their lists. The priest said, I feel that the principal resents my presence in the school. I would like to play a larger role, but feel I can't. I'd especially like to be more involved in religious education, but I feel pushed out. The principal then read out his assessment of the problem. I feel that the priest doesn't want to get involved in the school. I can't understand why he feels this way because we desperately need him, especially in religious education. How frequently is the issue that we're in the middle of, the conflict we're addressing, how frequently does it just it kind of revolves around miscommunication, right? A lack of communication does nothing but amplify the conflict. When we think, correct, and act, we can bring the conflict to a resolution just like Christ did. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, um, Paul writes, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Talk things through with whatever problems that you're facing, with whatever people that, you, that you're interacting with. Act like Jesus as you do your best to resolve that conflict. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done. I ask that you bless us in a super powerful way, Lord. Help us just truly trust in you and know that you are in complete control. Father, sometimes the, we get the, the things get the best of us. 
Sometimes we just feel overwhelmed and we feel like there's nothing we can do. It is those times, though, we need to turn to you and put our trust in you before anything else. It is at those times that we need to rely on you and and use you as an example. So, Father, if there's anyone here struggling through a conflict with their family, with their friends, with their neighbors, with coworkers, allow them to use this example. Help us think before we act. Help us correct our own actions before we try to correct anyone else. And then finally, Father, help us act appropriately. I I just acknowledge how awesome you are, Lord and giving us the perfect example. Help us live by that example. In your wonderful name, amen.